Our Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 4, and you can find it on page 967 in the Blue Bibles. Matthew chapter 4, and we start to read at verse 1. The Temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, two verses from Psalm 119 and then a prayer. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Heavenly Father, as we consider the threefold temptation of your sinless Son, please renew us sin-filled rebels by his saving grace. And as you have mercy upon us, please rule in us by the same Spirit who led and sustained him. And so we pray that you might hide your word in our hearts, that we may not sin against you, that you would direct our footsteps according to your word, that no sin might rule over us. For we ask it in and only in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do please be seated. It only ever happened once, but many years ago when I was curate at St. Mary's Cheadle, I was interviewed and quoted by the Guardian newspaper. Uh, They were running a story uh, about a loud, lively, and growing youth service called Planet Life that we ran on a monthly basis. Uh, They wanted to know why so many churches were in decline, especially among young people, but we were growing. Uh, That service was especially extraordinary because uh, although uh, it made our poor old medieval church building shake with high-energy dance music, Uh, The heart of the gathering was a solid 20-25 minute Bible talk uh, with no gimmicks, just Andy Hawthorne preaching God's word. 
Uh, I was there many times when a church packed with teenagers, uh, many otherwise, mostly otherwise unchurched, would fall absolutely silent as he did with them what I'm doing with you now and open the scriptures to them. So why was there, why is there so much decline in the churches? My view then, and this is what they quoted, was this, because so many churches had lost confidence in the God who had spoken, a God who speaks still in his Son by the Scriptures. And as the Apostle Paul observed in his first letter to the Corinthians, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Our God is a God who speaks. He has spoken, and that's what we're studying this morning as we come to the Scriptures. It is written, and it is our calling to hear and to heed and then to proclaim that word in our world. God speaks the very universe into existence, sustains it by that same word, and it is in the gospel word of his Son, Jesus Christ, That he brings men and women, girls and boys, into new birth, into God's kingdom. God's word is the word of life. It is the power of God for the salvation of those who will believe. And nearly 30 years later, well, the churches have continued to hemorrhage, especially among younger generations, notably in those sections of the church uh, that do not submit themselves and devote themselves to the proclamation of the word of God. And as a national church, we haven't regained our confidence in the God who speaks. Uh, We continue to watch the Church of England endlessly vacillating between the countercultural but life-giving voice of God's word and the culture-affirming but death-dealing voice of the unbelieving world and behind that, the God of this age. I think the thing that depressed me most about the last General Synod a couple of weeks ago, and there was a lot to be depressed about, was the justification of new action blatantly contrary to God's word on the theological basis that we now are collectively living in, and I quote, a time of uncertainty. Friends, there is no uncertainty in God's word on the great moral issues that have torn the church apart for the last generation. There is enormous uncertainty in the church, but it is entirely self-inflicted. It comes because so many clergy and bishops do not fulfill their ordination promises to keep and to teach undefiled the word of God and to drive out error that would stand against it. How can we possibly unite if we are not humbled together under the truth of God's word? How can we proclaim the life-giving gospel of repentance from sin and faith in Christ if we don't agree on the biblical definitions of either repentance or faith? Oh, I pray that the Lord would have mercy on his church, that we may recover our confidence before it is too late in the God who speaks today through the word he has ever spoken. How relevant is the passage in Matthew's gospel this morning for these days? Do uh, come to it with me. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, the temptation of Jesus himself. Uh, Here Jesus does battle with the devil, and his only weapon is the word of God, in which he, as the Son of God, demonstrates absolute confidence. The devil's temptations 
seek to make the the way of self-indulgence more attractive than the path of obedience. Nothing really changes, you see, in the devil's tactics. His first recorded words in scripture to Eve as she contemplates the clear command of God are these, did God really say? A devil sows confusion. He does it today, just as he did then. And then as people listen to him and fall into sin, he brings accusation. And then once we've done that, he delights in acrimony and the alienation, both with God and each other, that results. Here in Matthew 4, he will do anything to keep the Son of God from obeying the Father's word. Today, he will do anything to keep the children of God from obeying the Father's word as well. One could almost say that his business here on earth is to create a time of uncertainty in the church around whether God's word can be trusted to say anything with truthful clarity and gracious power. So first, and this will be uh, by far and away the bulk of the sermon this morning, uh, lest you fear as we draw near to the end of the first point and you worry about the state of your oven, uh, we shall see how Jesus responds to the devil's temptation because that is uh, the principal purpose for this passage being here. Uh, But then secondly and just briefly, we'll see how he helps us to do the same. The key for both the Lord Jesus and we who trust him, though, is the same. We have in our hands the word of God, and it is all that we need to take our stand on to defeat the devil and his accusations and his doubts and his uncertainties that he would bring to us. For first, then, the temptation of Christ. As you've got this passage open, I hope, uh, as you were listening to them, as Annabel uh, read them uh, before, I wondered if you were thinking, well, Jesus' temptations seem somewhat unique to him. Uh, you and I don't have miraculous powers. Uh, we are never going to be tempted when we've uh, missed our lunch to consider saying to a, a rock in the road ahead, become a chicken and bacon sandwich for me, uh, or even a full-on lunchtime meal deal. It's not in our capacity. It's not a temptation that is likely to come in our way. You can only be tempted to do something that is within your power to achieve it. Or again, for us who are sinners, even from conception, sinners by hardwired nature, sinful even in our unspoken desires, separating temptation from sin is an exercise of theory, not practice. How can we grasp what it is to have no sin and no predisposition to sin and yet still to be tempted? It's so alien to our experience as fallen creatures. The experience will be radically different. You see, most of the time, the ways in which I'm tempted to sin are shaped by the ways in which I've sinned like that in the past. And I dare say, you're not that different. But Jesus never sinned, uh, and therefore he didn't have the moral equivalent of muscle memory uh, to map out the pathway of what it would be like for him were he to yield to it. Uh, So we might be tempted, as it were, to think, uh, even if we don't say it out loud, that he's got it easier than we have. After all, he's the son of God, isn't he? Uh, How hard can it be to avoid sin? But that way of thinking only takes root when we've lost the sight that Jesus is just as human as you and me. He is absolutely one of us. 
And as the author of Hebrews applies it, we do not therefore have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So let me put it like this, because we are sinners, when we're tempted, we often, to our shame, give in. I was still at the back of church. I heard you confessing your sins, and I joined with you in that. We know what it is to fall into sin. And we often, when we're tempted, give in quickly. It's the nature of our corrupt hearts. And the quicker we give in, the less we're tormented by temptation. The temptation is replaced by guilt, of course. If we have a functioning conscience, it's not a great exchange. But we also know, don't we, that the longer we resist a powerful temptation, the harder it is to maintain and to sustain that resistance. And if we do get to the point where we think we've mastered something, well, isn't that the time when we're precisely most vulnerable to falling under its sway once again? Well, we know that in our experience. Now multiplied by a lifetime of resisting sin as Jesus did, and tell me that he doesn't understand the intense power of temptation. He really does, and yet he doesn't condemn us who so often yield, but rather sympathizes with us. We'll come back to that at the end. And a final observation may help you if you think that somehow Jesus has an easier ride. Read the gospel narratives, and you will discover exactly the opposite. The devil may have left Jesus, as the end of this passage tells us, after these three particular temptations. But in reality, he just recedes from a public view in order to be just as active behind the scenes throughout the gospel. Who is it otherwise who orchestrates the machinations of religious and secular powers and their increasing hostility to him? Well, think of the disciples in their divisions and their doubts and their dullness, eventually leading to their desertion, their denial and their duplicity. I enjoyed that sentence. But behind, you see, the disciples is that same tempter who is behind all of us in the chaos and wickedness of our lives. It's here. And it's confronting Jesus. Uh, We see it in the frontal attacks, of course, the demons who become so enraged at being confronted by the Son of God. As we shall see, Satan's agenda here in Matthew 4 comes to a climax, not in this chapter, but in Gethsemane and at the cross. That will not surprise us when we see what his agenda is here, as, as it were, he lays that out for us uh, in these three temptations. I remember last week we considered Jesus' baptism. As Jesus was baptized, identifying with God's sinful people, the Spirit descends and the Father speaks. The Father's words were from two key scriptures, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. This is my Son, says the Father, quoting from Psalm 2, which describes the absolute and ultimate authority of God's Son over the nations. And from Isaiah 42, the father adds that his son is also his servant in whom he delights, the divine agent who will suffer for the sins of the people, bearing their excruciating punishment in order that the father's forgiveness may come and be freely offered to all who will receive it. 
And it's in the blending of these two prophetic strands that we have the identity and purpose of Jesus. So in a few weeks' time, as we gather in one of the services where we shall hear the famous reading from the end of Matthew's Gospel, and we hear that he is Emmanuel, God with us, well, that reminds us that he is God the Son, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. We hear also that we will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy, whose death on the cross will bring the salvation that he promises. And he comes not out of the blue, not as the true Israelite. We'll focus much on this this morning. Uh, Descended from Abraham and David uh, and recapitulating or rerunning the history of Israel. Only in him, only in Jesus, the true son of God, it will end in victory and salvation, not in exile and judgment. We saw that, if you remember, especially when we looked at the end of chapter 2. Israel, whom God calls his son, goes down to Egypt and is called back up. So Jesus, God's true son, goes down to Egypt and is called back up. But unlike Israel, Jesus will never turn from the Father. Where Israel failed, Jesus will be faithful. He will be the true Israel, the true son of God. Jesus is what Israel never was. And that's important because we shall see that means he will be the savior for us and the light of the nations that Israel never could be. That is what we're about to see as he's tempted. I don't know if you noticed, but all three of the scriptures that Jesus quotes in response to the devil's temptations, if you've been to Specsavers and can read the footnotes at the bottom of your Bible, come from the same section of God's law from Deuteronomy chapter 6 or chapter 8. That's really significant because Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermon to the children of Israel. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their sins. They'd grumbled and moaned and lost faith and worshipped idols and been sexually immoral. They had not been the obedient son of God that they were chosen and called to be. And as they come through that experience and they stand on the verge of the promised land, Moses teaches them a better way, a second chance. He teaches them how an obedient son of God will respond to temptation. Well, now fast forward uh, one and a half thousand years from Moses' sermon to Jesus' day, and Israel, now we know from the history of those intervening years, has once again proved to be a spectacular failure, as indeed we would have been in their shoes. It's not that Israel was worse than the rest of humanity. Uh, rather, they were chosen, as it were, as an exemplar for all of humanity to demonstrate that all of us are miserable sinners whose best efforts will always end in failure. That's the story of the Old Testament. Uh, the wilderness was followed by the promised land, but the promised land was followed by exile because they kept on sinning. So the need for the true Son of God who will honor the Father and save those who trust in him, remains acutely at the end of the Old Testament story. They couldn't save themselves, and they're there to teach us that therefore neither can we. But Jesus has come. He will fulfill all that the Father has pledged. He will be the one with all authority in heaven and on earth before whom we bow in worship. 
And he will be the servant whose own self-sacrifice brings salvation to all who take refuge in him and who despair of any other hope in themselves or anywhere else. And so who are ready to receive the life-giving forgiveness and new birth that only Jesus can bring. And how do we know that Jesus really is the one to do that for us? Well, because of what we learn here in Matthew 4. Because unlike Israel and unlike us, he will resist temptation and be the obedient son of his father. Each of the three temptations has the same essential character. In each of them, Satan says to Jesus, choose the way of self-indulgence, not the path of obedience. Choose the path of comfort, not sacrifice. Choose the path of immediate glory not the path of humiliation and rejection and the cross. So we meet Jesus here. He's fasted in the desert for 40 days. One day for each of the years Israel was in their desert wilderness. The number is not accidental. When Israel was in the desert, they didn't trust the Lord to sustain them, but faithlessly demanded bread. And God graciously gave it. But for their unbelief, for their sin, they died in the wilderness. And now here is Jesus, here is Satan rather saying to Jesus after his 40 days of fasting, if you are the son of God as Israel was meant to be, tell these stones to become bread. You're the son of God. Indulge yourself. You can almost hear the L'Oreal advert in Satan's voice. You're worth it, he whispers to Jesus. But Jesus is not Israel. He will not use the power that belongs to him, which he has set aside in order to come into the world to be the suffering servant for the salvation of all who believe. He will not reclaim that power to now indulge his own needs ahead of the Father's perfect provision for him. He will not use the power, let me say it again, that he has set aside in order to become incarnate, in order to satisfy himself because and here is an overlap with our experience at this temptation from the devil is at the same time a testing of the lord moses said to israel after their uh, rather unfortunate experience in that sermon on the verge of the promised land uh, this is where we find the context deuteronomy 8 verse 2 uh, remember how the lord your god led you all the way in the desert those 40 years to humble you And to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus has learned that lesson in a way that Israel didn't and that we don't. He will trust his father to provide for his needs. The second temptation follows a similar pattern. At Psalm 91 is a sweet promise of the Lord's protection to those who trust in him. Many times uh, when uh, one of our church family here has been poorly or in some desperate circumstance, it's been a privilege and a joy to pray through that psalm with you and with those who have gone before us. Often as well. It's a sweet promise. If you don't know it, uh, perhaps go and read it later. And in desperate moments, uh, discover there uh, a wonderful articulation of the Father's provision and protection 
for all those who trust in him. Well, Satan takes that beautiful part of scripture and applies it to Jesus. Oh yes, just because someone quotes the Bible, it doesn't mean you can trust them. I hope you've learned that. Look at the context of scriptures. Look at the motive for sharing scriptures. Don't just listen to the words, but hear where they come from. But of course, Satan, uh, in quoting these verses, twists the psalm from its faith-filled purpose to encourage those uh, who put themselves into the Lord's hand in their desperation into a faith-denying provocation. If I might paraphrase, he says something like this. If you're the son of God, force your father's hand to prove it. Hold yourself off the top of the temple, and as the angels scoop you up just before you're splattered over the floor of the Kidron Valley below, you and everyone else will know who you really are. And you can rest easy, knowing that your Father will protect you from all harm. And of course, Jesus has not come from heaven in order to stay safe from harm. Jesus has come from heaven in order to go to the cross for the salvation of the world. Later in chapter 16, Peter grasps uh, finally that Jesus is the Messiah, the true son of the living God. Uh, Jesus then explains precisely because he is the son of God, uh, he must suffer, be killed, and be raised on the third day. And having started so well, I love Peter, uh, he then gets it so wrong. Uh, He protests, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Remember what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. He hears in Peter's voice the voice of the one who tempted him here uh, in the way that he encouraged him to throw himself off the temple and stay safe. Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me, Peter. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. According to our agenda, comfort is always desirable. And according to the agenda of God, who has in mind the salvation of the world, it is the cross that must come first for Jesus. Peter was unwittingly being the voice of Satan, uh, who through him was coming back for another go. The Father will protect you from harm. Choose the way of comfort, not sacrifice. But Jesus knows why he has come. There will be comfort and glory, but first there must be suffering and sacrifice. And the son will not test his father, but unlike Israel, will trust him absolutely and without wavering. The third temptation is the most outrageous. In desperation, it seems uh, like the the gambling addict, he, he puts it all on one final outside chance, hoping that it might come home for him. Does he really think that Jesus will worship him? It seems extraordinary even to articulate it. And of course, Israel did. Israel worshipped her idols. And this temptation's power is to offer to Jesus precisely what will be his by right anyway in due course. As he will put it himself at the end of this gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, but given to him as the son who was obedient to death and was then raised from the dead to reign over the entire cosmos. The crown must come after the cross. As Jesus will later teach his own glory-hungry disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So why does it matter that Jesus was obedient in these three moments uh, when he was simultaneously tested by his father and tempted by the devil? Well, one last quote from that section in Deuteronomy will make the point. Moses pleaded uh, fruitlessly, as it turned out, for Israel to obey the Lord for this reason. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25 If we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Do you see the significance of that? If we obey God's law as he commanded it, that will be our righteousness. In other words, if we keep God's commands, if we never fall into temptation, we will be right with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. You do understand the problem with that, don't you? Uh, we've traced how it failed with Israel. But if we go back even further in the Bible story to the very beginning, we see how it fails for all of us. Adam had a wife and lived in a beautiful garden. And he had one command from God. And he didn't even keep that. Jesus was alone and in a desert. And obeyed every one of the Lord's commands perfectly, trusting his father absolutely. And by nature, we are Adam's children. And if we have to earn our righteousness, if we have to be good enough for God, we are doomed. And if we doubt that, even having looked into our own hearts, well, look again, friends, you've not looked deeply enough. But then reread the Old Testament. There is the Lord proving on a large canvas the impossibility of our obtaining salvation, righteousness, a place with him in his kingdom, if it depends on our own efforts at obedience. Now, as Paul uh, puts it in Romans chapter 5, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, just what we're reading here in Matthew 4, the many will be made righteous. That's why this matters. Jesus' obedience means our salvation. That's what this chapter means. Jesus' obedience means our salvation. Can I get a hallelujah? That'll do, even though you're Church of England. This is wonderful. Jesus' obedience doesn't just mean he's a great moral teacher. It means he's qualified to be the salvation-bringing son of God. And in the character of his response to those temptations, we know what is coming. This is the one who will choose the cross in order to fulfill the Father's purpose, to bring us salvation, to bear our sins, so that we might come and call on God as our Father as well. And all we need to do in all our moral failure and half-hearted effort is to put our trust in him. As Paul says again in Romans, but now uh, the sin of the world having been revealed universally and facing the condemnation from God, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Uh, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So friends, when you read of the temptation of Jesus, don't stop at feeling guilty because you fail when you're tempted. Of course you do. It's in our nature. Don't stop there. As it were, read the rest of the story and see in Jesus' obedience 
The Father holding out to you the gift of perfect righteousness as a gift, secured by the payment at the cross, and now ours, simply when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. But secondly, and I promised you much more briefly, what about temptation for the Christian? It really needs another whole sermon going through the same passage again. Um, That would only provoke you to all sorts of temptation, which would seem ironic, so we won't do that. I will just make a couple of brief points. What about us when we are tempted? Well, our response to it, like Jesus, needs to be rooted in Scripture. But where Jesus shows from Scripture that he will perfectly obey the word of God as the true Son of God, we claim Scripture's promise that our righteousness doesn't come from our obedience, but from his. It comes as gift. It comes as credit to us when we put our confidence entirely in him. And so our confidence is not in our own resistance to temptation, but in that alien righteousness which comes from outside as we put our trust in Jesus alone. We are justified by faith as a gift, not by works as a reward. And of course the devil hates that as well, and will seek to undermine it in a different way perhaps to the way he tempted Jesus and yet in many ways that overlap as well. Let's just trace two of those ways in which he will tempt us. On the one hand, he will throw our sins back at us. You are so wretched, he will say. You fail so often. If only the people sitting around you, he will whisper, knew what kind of person you really were, they would drive you from this building for your arrogant pretense to be one of the children of God. Does Satan say things like that to you, or is it only me that he says those things to? And our response must be to stay with Paul, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. I love the way that Martin Luther puts it. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Are you a sinner? Are you still failing in the most basic elements of Christian discipleship? Join the club. And nail your colors to the one who paid the price for all your sins from the moment you were conceived to the moment you end this life on this earth. Our righteousness only and ever is credited to us as a gift through our faith in Jesus Christ. And no accusation of the devil will stand. But the devil will hear that and he will come back and he'll try the opposite tack. As well, And this is his current strategy with the Church of England, so we perhaps ought to pay attention. He says, okay, God will forgive you. His grace is so expansive, and you know it is. So why in that case bother with resisting temptation at all? After all, if he's so determined to bless and forgive you and cover it all in the blood of his son, well, then just live as you please. Paul anticipates that, doesn't he, in Romans? Shall we sin that grace may abound? When we've grasped the gospel of grace, one of the sad ironies is it precisely gives an opening to the devil who says, well, it's all of grace, then why bother with your own obedience, your own repentance, 
at all. Isn't God love and only love? That is to cheapen grace and to neglect the reality that Jesus calls us both to repentance and faith. Yes, God is love. We hear much of that, and it's a glorious truth. But the same epistle of the New Testament that teaches us that tells us also that God is light. And that when God shines his holy light into our lives, well, then we are called to the confession of our sins and the turning around of our lives, not perfectly, never adequately to secure a righteousness that is of our own creation, but genuinely and from the heart. And so we confess our sins and we pray, Lord, grant us true repentance and your Holy Spirit that those things we do in this life may please you as you teach us what it means to follow Jesus. And our repentance is not from the things that we find objectionable, but from God's word calls sin. And sometimes the world will agree and sometimes the world will disagree. And our repentance and faith will always be flawed, yes, but they cannot be absent or redefined according to our will. This is just to listen again to him who said, did God really say? Now we must take sin seriously and as God defines it, confess it often, do battle with it daily, make no room for it, no excuses for it in our lives, not in order to achieve forgiveness but precisely because we have been forgiven and we are the children of God as we trust in Jesus and so we want to make it our heart's desire to live in a way that pleases our heavenly father is Jesus not about to teach us in this very gospel the prayer we call the Lord's prayer our father in heaven and what do we say forgive us our sins we pray it every day as we pray for daily bread but lead us not into temptation I ask for his will to be the pattern for our lives as well. And as we seek to follow him in this, uh, the pattern which Jesus demonstrates in this chapter is for us as well. He calls us to take up our own cross, not for the salvation of the world, but to learn from his example in trusting the Father's word and in laying down our lives in the Father's service. My friends, God's word is not uncertain either in his extraordinary, limitless grace that he offers to all those who will entrust their lives to his son, or his call to repentance, the consistent renewal as we seek to follow him according to the patterns of his word written on our hearts. And so we close with this confidence. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, We have one who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, there's so much. Uh, in these verses. Please would you lay on our hearts that which we particularly need to hear today. Thank you for the obedience of your son that means our salvation. We pray for any here who have a conscience that is so crippling them they cannot see the full forgiveness that is theirs 
in Jesus. A sin that still seems so live in their hearts that they cannot believe you would truly forgive it. Father, please, would your grace loom larger than that sin and your forgiveness more powerful than any of our transgressions. We pray also, Lord, for those who might have turned your grace into a license for immorality. Those who think repentance is optional or negotiable. We pray that you would humble us by your word. That you would teach us both the way of repentance and the way of faith. That as we yield to Jesus, as we find our identity in him, so he may strengthen us by his spirit to live a life of faith, lived out in love. And we ask it to your glory. Amen.